is Swampside Chats. Guys like us, we had it. The podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, an anonymous donor has put us on the forced march through Melinda Cooper's 2017 book, Family Values Between Neoliberalism and the New Social Conservatism. We take a look back at how a focus on the family survived the unraveling of the ultimate class compromise and why it can't be the basis for socialism. Not one step back. Okay, so we're talking family values. It seems today that all you see is violence in movies and sex on TV. But where are those good old-fashioned values? <laughs> it's almost like neoliberalism has led to a degeneration of our good old family values that allowed a nice, thriving welfare state to prosper. Lucky there's Angela Nagel. Lucky there's Amber Lee Frost. Luckily, the tradcast Twitter left will save the left from its own anti-family weirdo-ness and, and will yeah. establish true social democracy with a family wage for all. It's just that meme of, like, the two muscular arms joining hands, you know? You mean the cover image of this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we read part of a book by Belinda Cooper called Family Values Between Neoliberalism and the New Social Conservatism. It's from 2017. I was very impressed by this. I think we were all agreeing on that before. But I thought but one thing that this book argues that I've always said is that we can't really look at neoliberalism and neoconservatism as two separate things. They exist side by side and fuel each other in a way. Right. And this book really shows how the family is a point of struggle around which that happens. I mean, these days, oftentimes, like, neoliberalism, it's both used to describe, like, a particular ideology and also kind of a periodization, right, of capital. Mm. And so, you know, you see, like, neoliberalism and neoconservatism revolving around kind of the same period. And what's interesting in this book is it seems to me that she basically argues that the big point of contention was basically around questions of the reproductive sector of capital. She talks extensively about how there was kind of the rise of the image of the welfare queen around the particular program, the AFDC, which, while being, you know, not super high proportionate in terms of the overall federal budget, was the cause for a sort of social alarm amongst different sectors of the political class and politicians and probably the broader public as well. Well, yeah, the broader public. It's sometimes just outright rejected that racial politics or politics of resentment actually matters in policy discussions regarding welfare states within conversations on the left. And that's just, it's just absurd. The strongest social solidarity networks you would get would be in states that have these universal welfare states so that these specific issues never came up. Mm. I, I don't know what the causal relationship is there. It could very well be that, you know, as like Ted Allen and Noel Ignatiev would say, it's these issues that prevented us from having, you know, a real universalist labor movement. The book starts out talking about Wolfgang Streak, who's a German theorist of neoliberalism, and they basically call him an anti-feminist because he argues that it was 
Quote, feminism, after all, that first challenge of legal and institutional forms of the Fordist family by encouraging women to seek an independent wage on par with men and transforming marriage from a long-term non-contractual obligation to a contract that could be dissolved at will. So basically, that theory is, is that this whole post-war era of the welfare state that stood in contrast to neoliberalism, it stood on this strong family wage is the idea is that it existed because you had a compact nuclear family that could be reproduced with a single wage which was you know the patriarch of the family that's that is kind of the sick monkey's paw logic of neoliberal capitalism where at the height of united states and you know western european prosperity protested uh you know in order to sort of push like liberation further and so capitalism said, okay, you can have those things, but in like this inside out commodified form, and we're going to eviscerate the previously existing kind of material social basis for, you know, progress for lower sections of income within society. Yeah, it's like that meme where it's like, uh, you know, like the 68 protesters, can we please have liberation of all desires? It's like, okay, and then, you know neoliberalism time that's exactly the thesis of um, another person she talks about boltanowski and Schiapello in their book new spirit of capitalism you know this has kind of has the same argument that basically like the kind of social movements of 68 were these forces that abolished fordist capitalism and allowed neoliberal capitalism to come in and part of doing that was basically abolishing the family i also get this with like christopher lash and his critique that basically the new left abolishes the family but doesn't replace it with anything so it just creates a new form of alienation cooper in this book is she's kind of pushing against this idea that neoliberalism equals dissolving of family values i guess what she wants to do is demonstrate the unity of opposites you might say within these two rising tendencies What's really cool is that she does this by grounding it in a unity of opposites from the previous, you know, political class collaborationist pact and the consensus around welfare that was very interesting. One of the moments that really got me in the reading was the description of Nixon listening to then liberal policy advisor and Catholic Moynihan, right, about just simply including black families and I should say black men into the breadwinner welfare state. That was a one image of universalism. And someone like Richard Nixon yeah. was willing to implement this as part of a strategy of easing racial tension. That was one of their stated policy goals. And what's interesting is that you see a lot of this anxiety about family structures and the effect that welfare has on family structures. And so there's this kind of idea that welfare is causing social decline by basically weakening family bonds. For example, she talks about how uh, Milton Friedman, for his part, assumes the nuclear family as a natural or spontaneous state of the uncorrupted social, the same way he kind of sees the equilibrium of the market. And so as these neoliberals are trying to basically deconstruct welfare, a strong, compact family that's supposed to kind of spontaneously exist is seen as the alternative form of social protection. And a decommodified zone. It's very surprising to see that shared by the neoliberals. That's a bit well, strange. What's interesting about it all, first of all, yeah, it seems like in that case, he was simply kind of expressing what seemed to be social common sense at the time. 
But it, there's this weird double thing where it's like, well, they, I guess they mm. see the government as like this parasitic mm. entity that's like undermining yeah, I, w- I, w- I don't want to. It. it wasn't really social common sense. What Nixon was interested in, well, I forget what that was called. You don't, you don't think that the idea of like the nuclear family as the basic like family unit wasn't kind of common sense in the United States like in the 1950s and 60s? I mean, no, I thought you were referring to the idea that welfare is undermining the family because previously it was basically welfare. It is building the family, or, you know, this breadwinner class compromise is the family. Yeah, and this is where the discussion of Carl Polanyi comes in, because she basically says, like, Polanyi points out how market forces disentangle and de-territorialize, or whatever you want to call all these old traditional forms and bonds, and so Polanyi-type analysis, like, the only idea of class struggle becomes kind of protecting like old forms of tradition that were once kind of uh, shields against the market kind of reduces your critique of neoliberalism to upholding like the Fordist like family structure up against modern capitalism and it's more flexible form of family if that makes sense. Well it's interesting too how this idea of like the family as like this this pure like decommodified zone you see that especially like in Victorian literature too like Mm -hmm. in the 19th century you know, yeah. you see it in the way that, like, you know, they used to write about women, about, like, this angel in the household who, you know, right, has, right, be, right. has to be protected from the corrupt world of men, you know. The feminine mystique. Yeah. The, what underpins the nuclear family is, you know, basically women being dependent on a male breadwinner and basically being primarily responsible for raising children. Yeah, in a sense, you know, basically making women no longer dependent on men will undermine the nuclear family to a certain extent. <gasps> You know, I mean... Oh my god, shock horror. Yeah. What was crazy to me was when Cooper quotes the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and their kind of implicit support for a a breadwinner New Deal kind of politics, because League of Revolutionary Black Workers was doing something that, you know, very few American labor movement manifestations really did at all. There's a thing in the labor movement that the government probably wanted to kill the most. Um, and it's still fundamentally shared, the breadwinner point of view, which, I don't know, it strikes me as something that we're talking about with Marcuse, where a certain kind of buying in is the rational option in the national framework. Workers were trying to basically protect what they had, and yeah, what they had was kind of a part of an overall package. And on a certain level at the time, you know, from a purely economistic standpoint, I can understand them saying, like, I'm getting paid enough to feed and house three plus people. They're going to take that away from me. And yeah, I can see how ideologically they would kind of lump it all together, you know. Wilhelm Reich links that sort of like patriarchal family tendency back to fascism or just general reactionary tendencies overall. It makes us ask the question what the. 20th century manifestations of class compromise in social democratic capitalism, what was that? And the ways that the Marxist-Leninist states resemble that, you know, what are we really dealing with here? There's something just fundamentally conservative about all of these institutions that made neoliberalism look good. The common thread is that they all are based on this ideal family structure. She describes a dialectical tension where at one end, neoliberalism undermines the breadwinner economy. Right. But at the same time, you have the dialectic on the other side of neoconservatism that tries to prop up the family structure against these effects of capitalism. 
the thing I need to stress here is that this emphasis on the family as a unit is shared by the neoliberals, and that's the most striking thing about the wave of neoliberals that she's citing. And I don't think that I would have believed this had she not been so meticulous in quoting them and bringing out their evolution in thinking. For the Nagel, Amberly, Frost sort of critique mm -hmm. of neoliberalism in the social sphere when it comes to, like, family to work, you basically have to, like, project the current ideology of neoliberalism onto, like, years and years of development. They're mm -hmm. basically, like, taking Hillary Clinton woke feminism and, like, projecting it all the way back to, like, 60s, 70s, etc., I think ultimately we have to go with the kind of abstract individualist shit that libertarians and the neoliberals are pushing over this kind of weird patriarchal collectivism, honestly. Well, the thing is, these neoliberals, when they pretend to be all woke and progressive, this just goes to show it's really just talk and has right. no actual connection right. to their actual ideology and what they want to do. Just like when these socialists want to be liberatory, that's just talk too. I mean, I don't think that's true. Like, that's just something a right-winger would say. <laughs> For people propping up the patriarchal family wage as the image of socialism, I mean, you're as critical of social democracy as anyone. You look to Leninism over social democracy. Yeah, I mean, you said socialists, though. I don't think all socialists will support, like, the patriarchal family wage. Like The crazy thing is, there was a really broad spectrum of radicals and, you know, establishment people that did. That's the fucked up thing. And again, when you take this parallel to Leninism, there was the rollback on the attempt at abolition of the family from Colin Ty under Stalin. This is a fundamentally conservative development, even if in the context of czarist Russia, Stalin seems, you know, progressive on gender. Yeah, and also, you have to realize that those specific reforms weren't working. Like, there was specific, like, details about, like, the family life that was structured in, like, semi-feudal family relationships that sure. specifically made those reforms not really work, along with a lack of funding that came yeah, from the, the war. Yeah, the, the war communism conditions were a really big damper on things from the Colin Ty biography I was reading. Not being able to get, like, the money that divorced dads would owe because they didn't have money. Only the older patriarch of the family would actually have money. That's just a bureaucratic nightmare maze. That's not, like, a well-thought-out policy. But yeah, I hear it. Like, socialists historically have opposed, like, the nuclear family as a normative structure. If you look back at Engels and Babel their views on the family and the views of the, you know, the Bolsheviks in early time and the family. And so it's a right-wing deviation in socialism that we're talking about, really. One that lasted like a hundred years. But it's become normalized because of the dominance of social democracy and whatnot. And Leninism. Like, both of those, both of those things supported this. It was such a widespread locus of agreement. I remember looking at posters from the Second World War, and you had, except for women in the workplace, under Soviet propaganda, it was very similar images in all three. Very similar thoughts about women. Well, I mean, let's look at, like, the nuclear family, like, in the context of history, right? I mean, on some level, a little bit is, like, this holdover from tributary modes of society, where you have the plot of land, it's like a strong, multi-generational household structure. And the, the household is this very clear, segmented political economic unit. Like 
like what's undermining the family isn't just like welfare though it's also just social disillusion as a result of capitalism right like people don't stay in the same place right and so the broader like extended family structure necessarily breaks down and those kinship structures break down and so it's not just the nuclear family that's in a state of decomposition it's like the family in general community in general yeah in say a tributary mode of production or feudalism the family is a unit of production most production is household production under capitalism the household now becomes a site of reproduction for labor power as a commodity and production is done outside of a household so that itself breaks apart family in a radical way by transforming the family from a site of production to a site of reproduction. Right. And you saw how, like, the maintenance of, like, patriarchal authority in the father figure, even when the family unit was decimated at, like, the heights of, like, um, English industrialization, oftentimes, like, the male patriarch would still, on some level, formally or informally control the wage power of the other people in the household. You know, unless they ran away or something like that. Yes, exactly. Because as the family becomes more dissolved, like, the power of the patriarch, it doesn't necessarily become non-existent. Often it's just expressed in different ways. And oftentimes there's a perceived loss of power, I think, that is kind of behind a lot of the more extremist forms of incel, alt-right, MRA ideology that you see today. That brings me to wanting to look at one of the differences I think there is between social conservatism and the neoliberalism she puts forward. She talks about neoliberals being willing to concede social freedoms as a containment strategy mm. for discontent, disruptive gays and such, you know, and right. maybe the family as an institution will domesticate this disruptive social force. And it does. To an extent, but then also I think that the breakdown of the breadwinner economy I think you can pretty directly tie that to the rise in how many young people identify as queer or gay or bisexual, anything. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. There was this quote from a conservative, like, Christian that she was quoting very critically, but I had a kind of perverse reaction to it. I was like, oh, God. Um, this is in Buchanan and, and Wagner. I said Wagner, or I don't know. It's American. It's probably Wagner. All right. Anyway, by creating uncertainty about the future of money, inflation had the effect of shortening time horizons and inducing a desire for speculative indulgence among the consumer public. This, in turn, had led to a general breakdown in public morality whose effects were visible from expanding welfare roles to sexual promiscuity. We do not need to become full-blown Hegelians, they wrote, to entertain the general notion of a zeitgeist, a spirit of the times. Such a spirit seems at work in the 60s and 70s and is evidenced by what appears as a general erosion in public and private manners, increasingly liberalized attitudes towards sexual activities, a declining vitality of the Puritan work ethic, deterioration in product quality, explosion of the welfare roles, widespread corruption in both the private and governmental sector, and finally, observed increases in the alienation of voters from the political process. Who can deny that inflation plays some role in enforcing several of the observed behavior patterns? Inflation destroys expectations and creates uncertainty. It increases the sense of felt injustice and causes alienation. It prompts behavioral responses that reflect a generalized shortening of time horizons. Enjoy, enjoy the imperative of our time becomes a rational response in a setting where tomorrow remains insecure and where the plans made yesterday seem to have been made in folly. Okay, two things. 
First of all, that last sentence is pure Zizek, right? I know. <laughs> but people have the nerve to call Marxists monocausal. <laughs> people who go around, everyone finds their pet thing, whether it's it's inflation, time preference, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the petrodollar. Right. Like, all these people with, like, their dumb, yeah. like, one-trick pony theories. Evo psych orgasm. Right. Inflation causes trans. Yeah, yeah really. next time I shoot up, I'm gonna remember it's because of the budget, you know? It's, <laughs> <laughs> shoot up my black tar heroin. Yeah, you can feel the structure. I love how inflation is what's, like, coercing people. It's not, like, 20, 30 years of, like, constant television advertisement magazines and shit. No, because at this time period, like, inflation was seen as, like, America's version of, like, socialism, basically. It was caused by, like, unions and regulations and all of these various socialistic, like, as people called them, policies at the time. They saw that as the cause of inflation, and the solution to inflation was austerity. And so there is this kind of discourse where inflation is this decadent socialistic thing, and that's what's fueling, like, the decadence in society is all these sexually promiscuous drug-using youth. Long live inflation! Like, this is a point where the capitalist class is actually concerned about promiscuous drug-using youth, whereas now these promiscuous drug-using youth are, like, consumers in a marketplace. There's gigantic industries devoted to basically meeting the hedonistic appetites of all of these drug-using using promiscuous youth from like you know the music festival culture to sex culture and there's tons of profit entangled into that now every month or so you get an article about how like millennials aren't fucking enough or millennials aren't buying cars or anything like that you know they're so used yeah. to like people like just buying shit constantly whatever hedonistic impulses that they're like confused that millennials aren't able to do any of that <laughs> But the thing is, there's this weird compulsion in society where you're supposed to, like, be hedonistic. It's like a compulsive hedonism, almost. Like I work hard, but I play hard. Yeah, there's all these, like, kind of social cues where you're supposed to kind of, like, demonstrate your social worth through this kind of, like, consumptive hedonism. Like, looking back at sexual freedom in the Fordist era is a lot different than looking at sexual freedom today because what we're dealing with is, like, something that's been commodified very heavily and... And, and can take on very perverse forms, you know, they use an unfortunate word. Unpopular opinion. This, you know, ties very well into an already there primate desire to display, like as a way of, you know, securing one's status in society. And I know that sounds a little like wacko. That sounds like Veblen. I that sounds yeah. like Joe Rogan. Yeah, dude, we're all just monkeys. We just want to display. You ever done DMT? Hey, at least Joe Rogan believes in evolution, I suppose. A bunch of fucking value form, like people from the 90s or something. Maybe don't believe it, I guess. All right, all right. That's, that's something. Uh, I'm actually. with Lexi on this. No, the point being is that, like, the reason that a lot of sexual conservatism even exists is because of a kind of, I don't know, inferiority complex that comes out of being exposed to sexual display. There's a sort of like yeah, huge mean, resentment that takes root, and that's a cause of like a lot of this weird like reactionary shit too. So, so you say the Austrian school don't have big dicks? Is that that's 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 the issue? It's statistically improbable. All right. Well, I thought it was interesting what Grant said about how like under modern capitalism, like more people are you know openly queer and gay, 
than we've ever seen before. And I think that's because of this kind of breakdown of a really tight-knit family structure that there's there's less repression for people to fit into that ideal mode and because people are less directly oppressed or more willing to come out. Gradual social liberalization over these decades as this process played out. So, Quantity and equality. But at the same time, though, like, don't you think that maybe at a certain point this social liberalization reaches just like an absolute limit where there's really no progress possible anymore within the confines of the existing yeah. system? I mean, yeah. yeah. Why, do, why do you think I do this podcast, Dan? <laughs> How much more can we truly win for gay people and for sexual liberation without going beyond capitalism? Because it seems like all forms of liberation just become another instrument of commodification now. Right. Like every time we try to get our queer orgy domes like and it's not communism we just end up with some kind of horrible instrumentalized like you already have like these you know sex clubs and parties and stuff in elite you have to go to and have orgies and stuff like there's already this shit is working out for people it may not be you but like this this is the thing about capitalism is that how far like assuming capitalism how far could it go i think it could go asymptotically far Closer and closer, ever closer to the most absolute freedom for some people, and everyone else sees it on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Get my stand where they have like gay orgy spas, but there's like a franchise of it. So there's like the Planet Fitness of like bathhouses and stuff like that have been like getting shut down for years now. That's true. I feel like that kind of live gay social space has really been uh, lost over the decades. Those places still exist, they're just more private now. They've become sex clubs. There sex we country clubs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's just all kinds of like bizarre like sex vacations that like elites take and stuff, and it, it's, it's very fucked up. I met the richest people that I've ever met in my entire life in, in like a kink scene, right? Like I met someone that was literally Scottish royalty. Oh, wow. I met someone that like built a company and then sold it like in Silicon Valley and just just sitting in a warehouse like just chilling like just cuz they wanted to you know live in some alternate you know oppositional way I I can see why yeah, I mean, I don't like the people like around that stuff in Brooklyn and in Oakland and San Francisco whatever would develop this knee jerk contrarian like you know the Nagel position <laughs> okay yeah, all those Saudi sheiks need to stay out of our Studio 54. Keep that for Americans. That's a real grinder type. Those people are huge. There's a whole district that live in San Francisco. Like, hmm. this worked. Right. This strategy worked. The, the, the family strategy for curtailing, you know, queer possibilities or whatever. A lot of trans women I know just want to have a family. <laughs> yeah. So we get married, you know, want, want to feel like, you know, their wife material. It's so strange to confront in a relationship like these power structures. You all are talking about like sex country clubs and that sort of thing. Well, like from what I can gather, like most people don't really have sex or normal relationships or like functioning ones. Is that true? What are the numbers on that? It's, it's not, not so much that, that people don't, don't really have, like, relationships. It's sort of happened in Japan, the great drop-off in their birth rate and, like, the rise of, like, hikikomori sort of, like, um, guys. Well, you, we've seen millennials are having less sex than their parents as a generation, but I think within the kind of circle of people who have sex, there's a kind of greater sexual freedom. It's kind of hard to parse through. 
Yeah, the Instagram circle, like, can... Like, yeah. ten people are gonna have the most sex that anyone has ever had, and everyone else is an incel. <laughs> it's not even gonna be because they're bad-looking, per se. It's just going to be because they're too atomized. It's, you can watch it premium on Snapchat. <laughs> I'd like to see I'd like to see some empirical data on this. I don't know. This is the problem, though, is you can easily take this idea and then go, like, right-wing with it and say that, like, look at what sexual liberation has done. It's made us all just, like, incels who just go to sex workers and... Oh, and then you're against sex workers and everything, yeah. And only rich people. Like, there's a certain critique of sexual freedom that can be easily mobilized for a right-wing cause. And that's why I think, like, so many 68ers, when they got self-critical, they ended up going right-wing. Like, Michelle Clissard. I want to say, like, in terms of empirical data, I know there was an article in The Atlantic a little while ago talking about what they described as, like, a sex recession or whatever. Um, and... <laughs> From what I can tell, like, the numbers are kind of there in terms of, like, millennials having less sex and stuff like that, but it's not, like, astronomical. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure it's no, not. It's a, it's a thing. It's real. I think there is some level of social decomposition and atomization as a result of, yeah, very similar to the phenomenon where, you know... It's right, not Japan yet. Right, right. Japan got neoliberalism earlier because uh, their credit bubble popped a lot faster for a variety of reasons, but it's not catastrophic. But, but the people complaining about it most have probably, you know, cognitive distortions that cause them to catastrophize everything. And I think they also underestimate to the extent that incel types, like, existed, you know, in the 50s and 60s. They just didn't have the internet to talk to each other about it. To congregate. Let's get back to neoliberals and social conservatives. I think one thing was interesting was looking at, like, the intellectual trajectory of neocons and how pre-Clash of Civilizations, focusing more on domestic policy... How Hitchens before Hitchens. Right. For instance, they weren't opposed to like expanding Social Security or Medicare or things like that. They basically were universalist programs and didn't, you know, undermine the family specifically or the Protestant work ethic or whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. Like she points out that like people are very specific about what welfare programs they went after. It was often both gender and racial based and family based that they were trying to keep welfare going to because it wasn't just that welfare like makes people work less. It's that welfare undermines like the social fabric that entails like a Protestant work ethic. And I think as we could see, there is some truth to it. But the problem is, you know, you could support it and push for it. But if there isn't a like a more egalitarian social system, there isn't something creating some kind of you know, genuine harmony and social relations and the relationship between man and nature, you're just going to get, like, an increasingly atomized, exploitative hellscape. Well, that's the argument that Botelsky and Schiapello say in New Spirit of Capitalism is that, you know, you have to have a spirit of capitalism, a kind of hegemonic ideology that gets people to get up and go to work and actually do their job. And they say that under Fordism, before the rise of neoliberalism, it was kind of this Protestant work ethic and this belief and, you know, that we're building a new world and we're all, you know, part of, like, the nation, you know, working together for each other's good. And with neoliberalism, this kind of whole spirit of capitalism breaks down and becomes a more atomized thing where now it's everyone's uh, fighting in the marketplace of desire to achieve the... We're dumb shit that's not yeah. building the new world. That's just, like, replicating something that's clearly unnecessary that you don't yeah. care about. Well, there is, there is like a new kind of, it's not necessarily a Protestant work ethic. I'm not even sure how to describe it. Let's get this bread. Yeah, the whole rise and grind culture. Like life hacking? Life hacking is like the petty bouge version of this. 
with that kind of stuff though it's all stuff you do as an individual whereas like i guess under fordism the argument is you have like state like ideological institutions and churches and things like the family structure all these things like promote like an ideology that makes people work hard and have a work ethic Yeah, that's a good point, that there is a different psychic landscape today where workers don't have this collective like sense of duty to the nation and building a new world. It's just like everyone is just kind of like playing the rat race and maybe even has hope that someday they're going to like win. One thing that's also interesting to note is that, you know, the 1950s were in terms of like church attendance in the United States, like the high point historically. Like there had never been so many people who were religiously affiliated and there haven't been as many since. You know, religion is still a major part of American social life. If you can drive anywhere, there are far more churches than there are union halls. And if you watch, like, televangelists or anything like that, it is very much a lottery ticket mentality. Like, you just have to have faith. God will provide and get me out of this somehow. Or everything is extremely moralized, you know. Or I remember seeing, like, one time some dude had everybody, like, mail in, like, their bills, and he basically burned them. He's like, we're burning these bills, and that's going to wipe out the debt or whatever, like... Some of that shit goes back to, like, just old-school, like, American, like, Protestantism and, like, the Great Awakenings and... Right, right. In American religion, you have this individualistic quality where, you know, instead of the Catholic Church hierarchy where there's a hierarchy of understanding of the gospel, you just have, like, random preachers, like, they build the personal connection with God and, like, preach the Bible as they see it, if that makes sense. Right, they're, like, entrepreneurs. Yeah, exactly, but they're, like, entrepreneur cults, like, yeah. there's so much of that in America. I think the thing about the church is that it goes in with family life because family values and the idea of the patriarch's authority being the legitimate authority goes very much in with religious doctrine in many cases. Like, when the dad wants to, like, punish the son for being degenerate, they invoke, you know, going to hell. And so the more people believe that, that hell is real, the more they can discipline the child for being a degenerate or whatever. Churches have kind of lost some of their power in recent times, or at least especially on the evangelical right. They've seen their power erode because they tied in with politics and that kind of nexus of civil, social, and then political stuff has sputtered out a little bit. Like Not in Ukraine, at least. No, I mean in the United States. Basically what I'm saying is evangelicalism is falling apart. Yeah, Trump was a part of that, I think, too, though. Like, he kind of gave a blow to the, the evangelicals because he became, like, a cult of personality for them all to follow. I mean, kind of evangelical, like, involvement in terms of politics kind of goes back to, like, the era of the New Deal when, like, the capitalist class kind of began, like, supporting, like, they're trying to basically create, like, this religious alliance against the New Deal and see it as, like, undermining God's law and stuff like that. So they supported, like, these preachers like Billy Graham and he started to dabble in politics and then would meet presidents and would kind of, like, winkingly, implicitly endorse, you know, this or that Republican person. It's the prosperity gospel. Right. But as time, this sort of like gradually built up. And I think in the 80s, they kind of got high on their own supply and seemed to think they really were going to fundamentally transform American politics. But in a sense, they did. In a sense, they didn't because there's a broader imperatives beyond their control. So they basically end up tailing the Republican Party in various ways. And yeah, so the constituency is still very much there. And it's a big it's a big constituency. It will listen to Donald Trump. That's the thing. That's why it's failed to be 
Like it's it's no longer under the same kind of political. I mean, give it time though. I mean, you're not giving them enough credit. I think the evangelicals kind of played kingmaker there. They sort of realized that the other candidates weren't that great, and they made an early calculation to back Trump. Honestly, I think if I was evangelical Christian, like, and I was invested in making a kind of myth for my people, I would support Trump. But it's it's such a sign of weakness, the fact that they have to. He's someone you can promote as, like, a sign of God. You can, like, promote him as, like, a great, like, patriarch king who's been sent by God to save the nation. Dorel logic. Yep. Come on. Yeah. All these incentives come together for a kind of wanna believe that's basically structurally fascist. When politics becomes completely subsumed to this beautiful myth. Also, for all the people who are like, oh, why would evangelicals support Trump? He doesn't respect women. Oh, (laughs) you know, it's like, do you think these Bible thumping Christians actually give a shit about like women when they're being raped or like immigrants or anything like that? I think that Trump represents a weakness for evangelicals having to support him because he's the one who's promising to cram the judiciary with social conservatives. I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I agree that they are, as a constituency, in decline. But remember, people see religion as the heart of a heartless world. And if the world gets more heartless, you know, you could see like another rise in power. And my point is, I don't think we should count them out just yet. The thing that I would say is that I feel like, uh, how do I put this, spirituality and religion are going to be reconfigured even more so to be more rhizomatic and to be it's less It's already happening with, like, weird hate yeah. and shit and, like, yeah, yeah. like, you know, all the woke, like, Wiccan, like, shit or whatever. Right. Ugh. Like, that. those sort of decentralized, exclusive believer, like, clubs. It already started happening with the rise of the hippie movement and New Age. You know, who would have really taken that seriously as the prefiguration of how spirituality would actually operate into the future until the advent of the internet? I don't know, society really collectively realized that, oh my god, people will just come together and devote their lives to some new dumb whim and form a circle around it if they know other people are down. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. By the way, um, you can uh, subscribe to our Patreon, it's at Swampside Chance. Uh, you- <laughs> PayPal.me slash Swampside Chance. Yeah, you can pay a dollar a month to talk to us on Discord. Two dollars a month, we'll uh, leave a message on your voicemail. It's customized Swampside voice message. Three dollars a month, we'll sign your dog. <laughs> Also, if you pay, like, $500, you get, like, a struggle session with me personally. <laughs> and you can smoke a blunt with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we say it's a struggle session, but it's more like Maoist-influenced life coaching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get you revved up for what you want to do in life. I'm going to get you excited about the revolution. And you're not going to wake up tomorrow depressed. You're going to wake up thinking about a brighter tomorrow beyond the nation-state, capitalism, the family. You're going to be ready to rise and grind and build a party. That's right. So come to our convention center in Orlando, Florida. Appropriately enough, we will be, yes, in Orlando at the Amway Convention Center. That is what the (laughs) convention center there is called. (laughs) The Amway literally has a convention. Anyway, sorry. Uh, So... Let's get back to the text somehow. Oh, we were talking about cults and maybe how that kind of relates into it is in this world where family relations are kind of weakened. Cults serve as a stand-in for the family. Yeah, like as exploitive as families can be, cults are like game theory abusive families. Yeah. Like like reading the game and being like, this is like a manual on parenting. For people who are abandoned by their family and need community, 
you know, a cult is a perfect thing for them. It's really fucked up because if we're going to compare what's more abusive, a cult or a family, it's like, is David Koresh any more abusive towards, you know, one of the children he abused as a father is towards a child he abuses? I don't know. It's just... Either point is they're both fucked up and bad. And yeah, but I feel like statistically a cult is more likely to be bad than like an average family. I could be wrong. Who uh, knows? Who knows? Like mm. kind of gr- they're grifters. Like this you're is- more likely to be raped by a family member than you are by a stranger. It's hard to compare the two. Is what I'm trying to get at. It's just but my, like- my point is like name for me a good cult. They feel like a good Scientology. Like a- Look at how much money they make. <laughs> like Jake, go to Ebor City and just you, you'll see the Scientologists there. Yeah, but what's what? Can we define good, Socrates? There, there's no such thing as a good cult. Just like the you know, cults as institutions are fucked. Name it like a cult where it's like, yeah, you know, she joined that cult, and man, it really just turned her life around. Like she's great. She's fun to be around. I would think like Unitarians and that sort of thing. It's not be- a cult though. Like a cult is like, uh, we're going to outer space, baby. Drink this. <laughs> the thing is, like, cult already has, like, a negative connotation to it. Thank you. That I rest my case. It, well, yeah, <laughs> but it's not really the sociological category that people who generally discuss, like, new religious organizations that sprouted up in, like, the 70s like to use because it's a moral judgment more than an actual sociological term. Well said. Yeah, there, there's a specific okay. type of, um, I hesitate to call it ideology, it's more like a systematized wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah, like, um, what's the one with Reverend Moon again? I, oh, God, I don't remember. The Moonies? The Moonies? Moonies, yeah, I wouldn't really describe them as necessarily bad on par with, like, Scientology or any other, like, religious organization, even though, like, obviously they're bad because anti-communism. Okay. Well, I, look, I was just asking for an example. It was a genuine question. According to Frank Zappa, the only difference between a cult and a religion is the amount of real estate they own. But the thing is that very few religions ask for the level of participation that most cults do. But although there are ones like the Mormon Church, which have all the tax records of well, attendees. Here's a difference. Here, let me think about this. Like, a cult... For example, is a is a replacement for a family. Like if you're in a real cult, you're estranged from your family. Whereas like a religion is designed to empower the bonds that exist within your family, mm. as it's supposed to be. That's an interesting definition. What about what about Rainbow Family? Is that a cult? What about that? What about Swampside Chats? Is that a cult? I'm tempted to steal the Reno 91 joke. Like we are a family, but uh, you know Manson was a family. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. What are we having for dinner tonight, Mom? Let's see. So what uh what else do we have to say about um Melinda Cooper? Uh read this instead of I don't know. Yeah. Christopher Lash, even though like Christopher Lash can be useful at times. This is really good. I think it's looking at something that is often overlooked, like the reproductive sector of capitalist society. And it's looking at how that was kind of instrumental in shaping basically political debates and the political ideologies of the latter half of the 20th century and into today. And it gives a lot more context for understanding the dismantling of the welfare state and especially like the Clinton administration and the groundwork that was laid for that. I feel like the the political lesson to learn here is kind of what Lexi was saying about how there's a common line between 
neoliberalism, social democracy, and Stalinism with this idea of the nuclear family as a naturalized, like, institution of the family, you know, instrumentalized for accumulation, if that makes sense. Yeah, and conversely, there's a new kind of common sense logic between economistic, scientistic, reductionist, liberal types that have a, I don't know, a structural devotion to the family as an economic unit because it's important for capitalism. And that this is the point the social reproduction feminists are very good about, is that it's not just an archaic institution. And it might be the newest of a series of implementations of the same dynamic, but it is the real subsumption form of this dynamic. It has truly been reconfigured. Patriarchy is pretty capitalist but it's reconfigured for capitalism, and within capitalism it's reconfigured in different ways, spatially and periodically. Because there's a certain amount of unpaid domestic labor that needs to happen in order for the proletariat to be reproduced, and so, therefore, a certain amount of institutional patriarchy has to exist to kind of make that unpaid labor happen. And again, there is, you know, a very high ceiling of bourgeois freedom, right? But for the proletariat, it is a much lower ceiling. (laughs) Yeah, I was very impressed by this. I'm going to read this whole book. Um, This is political economy that isn't obviously Marxist and could pass muster with anyone who actually cares about the, quote, identity, quote, issues, or just democratic freedoms in general. And yeah, it's just good research on the Very topic. well argued and very well written. The term neoliberalism gets thrown around a lot, and I think this really gives a very penetrating insight into both neoliberalism and even neoconservatism as ideologies and the kind of social shifts that underpin their emergence. It's very, very good. And I think you could use this as a basis to write a book. I think you could call it, like, the political economy of Boomer Man. <laughs> you go a long way towards like demystifying this kind of image that people have of this kind of like golden age of like American capitalism. Yeah, it just shows you the difference between like national like autocratic order and some kind of future liberty beyond liberty. Because I don't know yeah. when you play the Civilization series, sometimes they won't label the ideologies directly. And capitalism will be called liberty, uh, fascism will be autocracy, and then communism will be called order, right? How did that happen? How did the socialists become the party of order? That's really the fate of the attempts of the 20th century. Really just starting from social reproduction, we have the different horizons of a nationalist patriarchal capitalism, or, you know, this much broader kind of revolutionary attempt that would have to destroy these class compromises, these nationalist class compromises. You know, if you want to tear apart your family's um, arguments about harm reduction in voting for liberals at, at your Christmas or Hanukkah or any other religion you might celebrate, table. You're at a table, it's a holiday. The point is, you can really point out the kind of role of liberals in the destruction of working class institutions and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a rational kernel to the resistance liberal, like, memorize your arguments when it's Thanksgiving to go to your family and argue your case. But they're the wrong arguments. These are the arguments. But don't actually go to Thanksgiving in, like, a politicized, instrumentalized way, please. 
talking points is, is what the NPC if, meme is no, really about. When you go to Thanksgiving, you're going to war. You're going to war for communism. <laughs> if you're not driving over there playing Phil Collins in the air tonight, you are not a real communist. You're not a militant. You're part of the problem. You're not a part of the solution. You gotta watch some young turks for a few hours. Oh really my god. Lexi, what would the Shining Bath want you to do on Thanksgiving? Would they want I, you I to, know what Comrade would want me to do. On these fucking kulaks who celebrate genocide on Thanksgiving and vote for Trump. But Listen, we joke about this, but honestly, like, what we're saying is basically that's what conservatives do, like the Fox News people, because they basically spend all their time, like, listening to, like, this straw man figure of, like, the liberal. And so they're like, when I get to Thanksgiving, I'm going to talk to my dipshit nephew, and I'm going to, like, break their feelings with my facts. that's it for this week. Thanks again to an anonymous Bonapartist who asked us to read this excellent text for their custom episode. Get your own at patreon.com slash swampsidechats. Remember that Swampside Chats will never hide podcast content behind a paywall. Also, these are the final few days of the year to subscribe and get a custom episode for three months of Bonapartism or a $30 donation. On January 1st, that doubles to six months of Bonapartism, or a $60 donation. The wind of history is at your back, First Consul. Choose wisely. Next week, we build ourselves a new god with a couple of articles on Anatoly Vasilyevich Lunacharsky. Keep your boots clean, comrades.